you listen to the mainstream media, you may believe that crypto is dead and that Web3 is no longer a thing. But I can assure you that there are people still building for the future the technologies that we'll be using that underlie everything in Web3. It's a meme, but bear markets are for building. And nobody is building more than Shahaf Bargethin. You don't want to miss this conversation and see what's being built in Web3. That's dope. You started a company in 2006 called Web3. Do you think that you were the first person to ever use that term? Uh, probably not the first, but of the first and most definitely before Satoshi Nakamoto. Most definitely. Yeah. But what, what did Web3 mean to you in 2006, considering we didn't even yet have blockchain or Bitcoin? Yeah, well, uh, uh, to be honest, it was it was a farce. Uh, the company did really well. It ended up uh, being acquired by uh, IPG. When we started it, we uh, we were three folks, and Web two was all the rage. And we were like, huh, let's just call it Web three because there are three of us, and everybody's talking about Web two. So let's just be Web three, and that was that. And you know, who knew that it ended up being doing really well, uh, lasting so many years, uh, um, but it did. Yeah. That's incredible. What did the company actually do, though? Uh, it was a media company. Uh, so I started it with two other guys. One of them ended up um, uh, being the founder of Iron Source that was acquired or uh, merged this year with Unity. Um, and the company was a media company. So we were, you know, one of the first to uh, celebrate uh, marketing on the internet uh, back in 2006. So uh, really focused on that and everything that emerged from that, like mobile uh, ad networks, etc. So unrelated, you eventually found crypto. I think you got into crypto in around 2016. Now you've told me that you're cynical about a lot of things, but Web3 is not one of them. So the Web3 theme has come back around for you big time. Yeah, I guess it was meant to be. Uh, yes, uh, that, that's that's true. It it did have some relation because uh, uh, when everybody started doing ICOs, uh, it became like a marketing vertical. So we we noticed that, and and I uh, like I have a story. Um, uh, Yal Herzog, one of the founders of Bancor, he did a lot of things way uh, early, and back at twenty. 12, I think he sent a bunch of us an email about um, buying this thing called Bitcoin. Um, and I just put it in my to-do list and, and never got around to this until, you know, three or four years later. Um, Eyal also uh, talks about aliens and other things. So um, I, there's some reason why we didn't listen to everything, right? But uh, he did mention that. Uh, so it was always on my radar. But yeah, actively uh, 2016. But you're building a lot of things right now. I would say that there's been this sort of mainstream, maybe idea that Web3 is dying or that there's not as much interest. Right. But I think that we have the meme, the bear market is the best time to build. And that certainly has applied to you. So I, I know that you're working on things in gaming, stable coins, literally across the board. So let's Maybe just start with one of them. Uh, payments, obviously. You have uh, Koti, right? Which is one of the yeah. more popular pro projects uh, that you are the head of. Is that how you got started in crypto? Is that your first major project? Yeah, it is. It is. So like the silver lining in everything is that I want to be where I believe adoption will happen. So that's payments, stable coins, uh, games. 
and, and also taking a big leap into reg tech this year because uh, you know, if if regulation might kill adoption unless uh, we find a way to to solve that. Uh, so that's kind of like what binds it all together. Um, it's it's about adoption and where I think it comes from. But yeah, this is the first thing. Uh, it's a layer one that we built back in 2017 uh, to solve consumer merchant payments, essentially um, uh, to build an infrastructure that allows you to build um, on-chain PayPal. So that was way before L2s, and and we based our infrastructure on a graph to make it, uh, you know, super scalable. Um, so that was the it still is the reasoning behind uh, behind Cody. And so, do you still see the same use cases and vision for payments in crypto as you did in 2017? Because obviously, a lot's happened. You even talked about sort of the proliferation here of L2s and other other platforms. And do you think that what you've built is still the solution for that? So yeah, how we plan on solving regulation is also related to Cardi, and I'll get into that. But like what we learned over time is that um, when a merchant is doing, you know, pay with crypto, he just usually replaces the legacy payments problems that he wanted to solve with a new set of problems that come with crypto payments, like settlement time, compliance issues, operational difficulties, and and all of that. So we needed to kind of like evolve what we're doing. So. Um, to solve settlement time and all of that, obviously, we build a very scalable infrastructure. Uh, as we cater enterprises, uh, so when we thought about our L1, the classic trilemma of um, decentralization, scalability, security, we can't at all uh, compromise about right. scalability and and, and sorry and security. When we offer an A to Z solution, and this is what enterprises are actually looking for. They're not looking for a layer one. They don't need new problems. They're looking for solutions, what we call the private payment network. And that allows that an enterprise can issue uh, maybe a loyalty token as well, a wallet, processing gateway, etc. It's an A to Z uh, solution. Um, and it helps enterprises because it slashes fees, it improves their settlement time, it increases the loyalty and, and, and kind of like allows them to own back their financial data that they're sacrificing now for uh, third-party uh, providers. That makes perfect sense. I think the next obvious topic then is stable coins, right? Because yeah. there's a major integration there between the payment side and the stable coin side. And since you started, Koti, in 2017, I would imagine the stable coin boom has fundamentally changed the way that you view all of this. I remember coming into crypto in 2016, 2017 as a trader, and we just traded Bitcoin pairs because there was no such thing really as stable coins and stable coin pairs. And you could argue even that stable coins have somewhat become the killer app of crypto. So I, I, mean, I guess so, talk about your involvement in stable coins and how you think that that uh, interplay will work out in the future. You've mentioned trading BDC pairs, and believe it or not, this is uh, this was still the case in uh, in Cardano until not a while uh, back. So we just launched Jed. Uh, Jed, uh, it's a fun name. It's come from uh, uh, the Egyptian word uh, or symbol for stability. So it's um, so it's D J E D, um, and you can find it on Jed.xyz. So what it is, it's it's an over-collateralized, decentralized stablecoin on Cardano. And, and we chose Cardano because it was still missing a big stablecoin uh, for DeFi to flourish on. And, and, it, and it's doing well. I mean, it was launched about a month ago, uh, and it already captures 12% of Cardano's TVL. So it's doing really well, and it, and it helped Cardano DeFi flourish again. So we're very happy about this. And what's cool about Jed is it's the design. 
So I think it's pretty clear, especially with the BUSD thing now, that um, we're looking for more decentralized stable coins than centralized stable coins. Um, and JED is backed by ADA, and it's over collateralized. So it keeps it back because it's over collateralized 4x to 8x. Um, so, you know, for every dollar worth of JED, at least $4 worth of, of ADA. What's the problem with that? Yes, it's very safe, but it's not really capital efficient. That's the problem with over collateralized stablecoin. There is another token. It's called uh, Shen. And, um, and Shen holders are the one that provide the over collateralized to this ecosystem. They are the one that, that put in all the ADA that is required. Uh, now, why would they do that? Uh, they do that because they are the one that picks up all the mint and burn fees from the protocol. So instead of, you know, circle uh, collecting uh, the, the, the treasury yield or whatnot, it's actually the user base that collects the, uh, all the earnings, uh, all the fees that are accumulated in the platform. And this is why they provide this. So they, there's this symbiotic relationship between ADA, Shen, and, and JED. Uh, and this is a very novel, uh, novel type of uh, architecture for a stablecoin, and it allows it to be uh, fully decentralized. Um, and we will launch this on other chains um, uh, as well because it works. I have to ask you because it's the tough question. We just saw the algorithmic stablecoin collapse last year with Luna. Luna. Obviously, it was not uh, four to eight yep. x uh, over collateralized, but Luna dropped a hell of a lot more than eight times. Uh, yeah. very, very quickly, right? We saw Luna go from $100 to less than a dollar in just a matter of days. So What's the that black swan and understanding that at least the possibility is there, how do you make sure that uh, Jed remains a because, safe stablecoin? Because Luna, um, um, by the way, Luna was an algorithmic stablecoin. This is an over-collateralized algorithmic right. stablecoin. Right. And what's the big difference? It's, um, it's the circular dependency that Luna had, right? Luna and UST, uh, if people lose faith in UST, they lose faith in Luna and vice versa, right? There's a ADA that's not, that is not reliant on JED, right? Uh, there is no reason why um, if JED drops, the price of ADA will drop, right? There's no dependency there. ADA is very independent asset that does all other things. It has very deep liquidity, uh, completely unrelated to, to JED. So in order to depeg JED, you need to uh, make the ADA price drop uh, by at least 80% very fast. Um, and that is a different thing than, than Luna, uh, obviously. Um, other than that, no, JED is really decentralized. Luna really, uh, really wasn't. The revenue model is, is different. Um, and then there are other things. But I think the big thing is obviously the circular dependency that UST and Luna had that JED and ADA uh, doesn't have. You mentioned that you intend to do it on other chains. So was Cardano sort of the test case for it to make sure that it worked and to increase the TVL? Because it's kind of risky to launch initially on Cardano, right? Um, a lot of people uh, think that, but, but we actually have a long-lasting relationship with Cardano. We actually love Cardano. Uh, we did um, uh, ADA pay on Cardano. Um, and we have very good relationship with, with Cardano, and, and it's it's worth mentioning that uh, the white paper for Jed was actually uh, written by the research team of uh, IOG, which is um, uh, one of the founders of of Cardano. That's actually the company that Charles Hoskinson uh, is the CEO of. So, uh, and and in the design of Jed, they were actually building the smart contract. So this was done with uh, uh, IOG Cardano. Uh, so that that 
kind of like the uh, how it's built. But over time, yes, we will build it on on other chains, um, especially when where it's needed. Right? We just saw CZ uh, talks about uh, needing a decentralized stablecoin on Binance Smart Chain, for instance. So that's uh, a way to go. If it's deployed on Binance Smart Chain or on Ethereum or other layer ones, would it be backed by those assets or would the structure still be where it was somehow backed by ADA? No, it would be backed by those assets. Uh, but like in reality, you could, it, it, like in theory, story, you can uh, bridge assets and then uh, kind of like clock them on that specific chain for like, so for Jed, for instance, we're thinking, uh, what about Rept BTC or Rept ETH? as collateral in the smart contract. But that's um, 2024 sort of thing um, uh, to think about. That's 100 years in crypto. 2024, that's like 100 yeah. years away. Yeah. What do you, I hope I live to that age. I hope I live past the next month in crypto at any yeah. given time. Yeah, yeah. Right. <laughs> so obviously you now, payments and stable coins, you somehow some somewhat have figured out, right? You have a plan moving forward. These are the things that you're going to be focused on. I mentioned before, actually, that stablecoins are somewhat the killer app. I, I want to go into that a little further because, as you said, things in crypto largely haven't stuck. We have these huge bubbles, right? The DeFi summer mm -hmm. and the metaverse fall. And uh, what mm -hmm. did we just have? AI coins and uh, yeah. China coins and, and all these things. But I think it's an interesting interplay because people initially get into crypto largely because they hate legacy systems, they want to opt out of the dollar. But it turns out that in most places in the world, there's a lack of dollar liquidity. And what people actually want, if you're in a society or a country with hyperinflation, is access to dollars, right? You're not buying Bitcoin necessarily to transact. So that has sort of evolved, it's kind of contradictory, but to me, that has evolved as the main use case. So... Do you think that that's going to continue? Or do you think that we'll actually start to see people looking for wider adoption in these places for other coins and, and digital assets? So, yeah, I think it's very interesting because uh, like the narrative of Bitcoin was um, a currency uh, where uh, like the idea is that nobody can inflate your currency. There's this... Uh, uh, there's like a known supply uh, of it, right? It's immune uh, to this centralized uh, inflation of, of assets. You know, a lot of people assume that because of all the money printing, uh, we'll see the dollar price uh, actually um, uh, dropping. You're probably familiar with like the, the milkshake theory. Like everybody dollar milkshake, owes money. Yeah, of course. Yeah, everybody owes money in dollars, so, so dollar price actually will not drop. Um, so I, th I actually think we'll see more of what we're seeing right now. It, it's... Bitcoin as like a counterinflationary currency um, solution did not actually happen. Um, maybe it will, by the way. Um, and in in that sense, I believe in Bitcoin. So maybe it will, uh, but I don't think we've seen enough pain yet uh, for this to uh, uh, to happen. So uh, you know, when when fear is around, usually you know run back to the to the leader uh to to be under his wings right for protection and i think the dollar kind of serves this uh in our world right now uh will it be the case 10 years from now i'm not sure uh but for now i think we'll see more of the same yeah i think the narrative sort of evolved from inflation hedge to hedge against monetary uh debasement or against money printing 
And I guess you can look back at the period when they were actually actively doing this heavy money printing, how high Bitcoin went, but then yeah. again, so did everything else, right? I mean, yeah. Bitcoin pulled off many multiples. I think from the bottom, it was about 17X from March, 2020 to the top. But mm -hmm. even real estate on average and gold, all these things went up 40%, right? Every asset yeah. went up 40%. So I guess you just get to view it as a high beta asset uh, hedge against money printing. I, I agree. Yeah. So listen, you've also talked about other areas of Web3 where you're extremely excited and where you're building. None bigger, I would imagine, than gaming, right? I mean, that's probably arguably your largest focus at the moment. Can you talk about what you're building there and why you believe that that's going to be a major use case for adoption? So Uncage is a free native gaming studio, really AAA team, backers and, and vision. It's, we're building an ecosystem of uh, casual mobile games. So the first game, Monkey League, is, is launching uh, its, its alpha version actually next month. Um, partnering with amazing athletes. Uh, I think like, like 12 minutes ago, it's, it's uh, finished an NFT drop with Paulo Dybala. One of the co-founders is the co-founder of Playtica. Uh, and also my best friend. So uh, that was kind of obvious for us uh, to, to do this. And then also competed uh, Series A, raised uh, $24 million in equity from Griffin Gaming Partners, DraftKings, and other leaders of the space. So uh, GameFi and, and why am I a big believer in what the studio is, is doing? So let's start with the problems, obviously, and uh, like what went wrong with uh, GameFi uh, 1.0, so Axie and, and, and all of that. Um, the obvious things are that uh, we we're talking about inflation is that the play to earn was about inflating tokens to to supply you with uh, uh, to, to pay rewards. And this is obviously unsustainable and, and it's a bootstrapping strategy. It's not a business model. That was problem one. Problem two was uh, barriers to entry. Just too high. It was too expensive. Um, and as a prerequisite. Yeah, just yeah. terrible UX UI. I mean, I, people in the Philippines found a way, but it's your average person isn't going to like buy Ethereum, move it to a MetaMask, open a Ronin wallet, or send it over yeah, to yeah. a Ronin wallet. Exactly. And, like, I can't yeah. believe I have to do all of this to just play the game. Like, this is yeah. a very broken funnel, right? And right. and lastly, and that was the thing, games weren't entertaining. Uh, so, you know, games players... Like, so you definitely needed to pay players uh, to to play the game. So, th so I think th these are the big things, yet... If you think about all these problems, GameFi 1 was pretty big. Uh, you're just looking at, at valuation. And still is, you know, Axie is still a thing that, that, that is, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars in, in uh, market cap, right? And others as well. But why am I very bullish about this, about how OneCage is, is planning to, to solve things? Um, as I mentioned, the team and, you know, Raz is like one of the world's best game makers. Uh, he sort of invented free-to-play. And the way he sees things is, is as follows. Uh, think about an ecosystem. First, you have uh, one game. So in our case, Monkey League Soccer. So that's the first game. This is part of a franchise. And that franchise is called Monkey League Sports. So you have you know, baseball, basketball, football, why not? Then you have an ecosystem. And that ecosystem has you know, multiple franchises in it. So some you build your own, some you develop, some you buy, and so on and so forth. Now, how does this whole thing work? On a single game uh, level, three things come into play. Free-to-play, skills, and free-to-own. So how does it work? The game, first of all, is super entertaining. 
and, and to the extent that players are willing to pay in the game store uh, for this entertainment, like they do in many other games uh, uh, in the world. Web3 games is actually the other way around, right? But if you build a nice free-to-play game, people will actually pay for the entertainment. And the idea in, in Monkey League Soccer is that you don't need any crypto wallet. You don't need anything. You can just uh, download the game from, from uh, your favorite app store and start playing the game. So that's, uh, that will be available pretty soon. So people spending is one thing, free-to-play. The second big thing is like the question, like where do rewards come from, right? If you can answer that question directly, it means that this is Ponzinomics. So what are we doing? The idea here is um, skills. So um, if I'm playing better than you, it means that you bought in, let's say for a tournament uh, and I bought in for a tournament, but I won. So I win rewards and you don't. So I ate your lunch. So this is where rewards come from, from skill-based uh, sort of playing. Obviously, some tokens will be there for bootstrapping, everything, but over time, this, needs, this system needs to feed itself. Um, and lastly, just to make sure that barriers to entry are, are, remains low, the game is free to play. You don't need a wallet unless you actually want to interact with the Web3 economy of the game. Um, and there will be, and I think this is the first time people talk about this, so I hope they don't hate me in the studio, but there will be a free mint. There is like a, um, uh, there's going to be like a huge drop of monkey athletes. They'll be non-transferable, not tradable, but this will be part of the go-to uh, market. So this, in this intersection of free-to-play skill and free-to-own, this is where the, the, the single game in a franchise sits. When you think about a franchise like Monkey League Sports, you can actually port athletes from one game to the other. So today they're playing soccer, tomorrow they'll play uh, uh, basketball. Uh, in, in games, it's, it's easier than in real life, obviously, uh, thinking about Michael Jordan moving to baseball, et cetera. Um, so on the franchise level, assets are, are portable. Now, when you think about the ecosystem, the idea is that this whole ecosystem is binded with one ecosystem token that governs all the game treasuries. So every game, every single game has its own treasury, its own in-game currency, right? So right now uh, we have monkey bucks, but as an ecosystem, there is one token. It will probably be named score. Um, it's, you can't buy this. Uh, there's no um, selling of this token. Uh, it's the only way to get it is by committing your in-game assets for a long period of time to this ecosystem. And then you kind of like mine it. And, and this token allow, gives you access to treasuries of all games. So, so this is what binds this whole ecosystem uh, uh, together. And it's super, uh, super exciting because, uh, you know, the first game is coming now. Uh, there are conversations with multiple studios about, you know, core development of, um, of assets. Uh, I'm very bullish about this uh, uh, ecosystem. Monkey Bucks, uh, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but the actual token launched quite a while ago, correct? Yeah, that's uh, this was curated, you know, um, uh, to be honest, this was more of a tactical decision uh, of the team back then. Uh, just, you know, understanding that uh, uh, crypto winter is coming. Uh, uh, so that's the best bootstrapping uh, you can do with uh, well, with the currency. Uh, but uh, the actual utility, like the, the hardcore utility is coming around right now. Actually, you can use it right now, you know, to buy uh, assets. So this whole Polo Dybala NFT drop that we just did. Uh, it was all paid with uh, with monkey box, so there is all of that. Uh, but um, the 
the deep utility of the game as the car the in-game currency is coming around um, uh, April uh, or so. Yeah, you talked about some of the challenges, obviously, in the GameFi 1.0, whatever you want to call it. Of course, mm. obviously, the games just sucked. <laughs> yeah. I mean, flat yeah. out. Nobody wanted to pay them. You're clearly solving for that. But do you see the evolution of gaming in crypto to largely come from studios like your own, where we build triple A competitive games to the rock stars, you know, the, uh, obviously Fortnites and call of duties games of that quality that then include some sort of web three component, or do you think that maybe we'll see it? And the answer could be both coming from those games who finally see the light, have an aha moment and say, we need to offer some sort of in-game economy that's blockchain or web three based. So this is this is actually a question that comes in in um, in a lot of panels when you uh, like industry wide panels like is it going to be a native experience or or kind of like top down sort of experience and and obviously I'm talking from the position of believing it's it's an it's going to be a native experience but when you're looking at you know where, where the big funds are putting their money the big gaming funds traditional gaming funds they're actually also betting on native studios because. This has always been the case, right? It's not Kodak that brought in, you know, digital uh, photos. Um, and, and most of these, um, you know, Web2 studios uh, are already sitting in a position. They have, you know, the innovator's dilemma. Like, why would they? they everybody talks about disrupting their own business and being their own com competitor, blah, blah, blah. But nobody's actually doing that. You know, banks are not printing um, uh, stable coins right now. And uh, it's not the studios that that you know bring this, and it's not uh, you know TradeFi that builds DeFi, etc. Nobody's actually doing that. So I believe, like, like you know the the A to Z story of Uncage. I think maybe that Uncage builds a very good Web three open economy ecosystem of of games. And in a few years' time, you know, regulation is solved and this whole thing kind of unveils itself as, as a very good thing. And then one of the big players in the ecosystem uh, uh, tries to buy Uncaged. This is kind of like how I see this uh, rolls out. Will it even be possible with tokens and everything out there? Maybe, maybe not, but uh, we'll see. Uh, it's interesting that you've effectively still taken the other model. You're sort of a hybrid because you are allowing free gameplay for people who have no interest in the crypto or Web3 side. And that is not the approach that was originally taken. I mean, I guess I asked you about the two different directions, but you're actually threading the needle right down the middle. I think that um, uh, over time, I believe... Okay, so, so there's a good example. Uh, Scott Brown, I think, uh, no, I know, made it. And, and it's, it's pretty... Think about the following. Um, think about a soccer game, right? There's a big business around soccer, right? But there is actually no money in soccer itself. The game in itself has no money in it. You can go and play with your kids or with your friends. There is no expectation of any monetary value that is coming out of it. It's just the pure fun of playing the game. The actual business happens around the game, you know, with uh, franchises and professional teams and players and merchandise and, and viewership and commercials and all that. But all of this happens around the game. Not the, It's not the game uh, itself. It's the business around the game. And Uncage is building the same sort of experience. The game itself, the core game, is just fun. 
And if people love the game, then they may or may not want to interact with the business around the game. If they do want to interact with it because they want to be a professional esport player or because they you know, want to own assets and maybe trade assets like scouts do, maybe they want to own st stadiums and, and, and take some you know, sponsorship fees, etc. Only if they want to do that, then they need to connect the wallet and become part of the economy around the game. But none of it will happen if the game is not fun. Like a the, the soccer business would not work if soccer was boring. Like it's not, it's not that the business in soccer was so amazing that people started playing the game. It's always the other way around. So this is the approach of how we structure things. The core game is, is fun, it's free, uh, it's casual, it's mobile, it's something that you can just do for a few minutes. If you love it, then you can be, just connect a wallet. You can do that uh, uh, later on. So this is kind of like how we thread the needles. And I believe over time, um, you know, uh, people will realize that it's not that complicated and will make life easier for them. And they will connect and will convert. And some Web 2 players will become Web 3 players. Um, in 10 years time, everybody's Web 3 players. So then how do you solve for the UX UI problem that we discussed for those who do want to do it? I haven't seen a great solution, but I do believe we've had the zero to one moment and now we're just... Heading yeah, in the direction look. of doing it better. But like, you know, we use the same meme, but like if grandma loves playing, uh, you know, loves playing monkey league, is she going to actually be able to figure out how to then monetize and connect it? So I, I, um, I think of it this way. First of all, uh, I'm happy that, you know, a lot of companies out there are actually working really hard to solve exactly that. And it can be, you know, the Reddit of the world uh, with Polygon. And, and there can be many other companies that really want to solve this. You know, uh, Meta back then with DM needed to solve that. A lot of companies are trying to solve exactly that. And I'm sure some of them will. I don't actually think it's like our problem to solve that uh, because so right. many people are trying. He's a third you know, party, just... right. Yeah. But what's, what's very uh, interesting is like uh, I, um, my 12-year-old uh, started playing a crypto game, right? Uh, obviously, I pushed him. Um, and I told him nothing really. And remember he's, uh, I live in Israel. It, English is not his native, uh, tongue, right? He, he speaks English, but, uh, just because of games, by the way. Um, right. and, and he needed to figure out like a Solana wallet connection and everything and blah, blah, blah. And I, and I, I deliberately gave him no guidance. Um, and you know, uh, 20 minutes later, he's connected. It doesn't even think it's a thing. It's just connected because why not, right? Uh, it took me like an hour to understand Discord because of such a boomer. And he, he does Same. it all the time with his kids, right? with his friends, right? It's, so I think it's not that complicated, to be honest. And also it's going to be a lot easier. And lastly, it's not really the grandmothers that we aim to. Uh, right. It's, uh, you know, the 20, 30, 40 year olds uh, and uh, with, with crypto games and down the line teenagers. And that, and you know what? They'll be fine. They'll really, right. really I mean, fine. the people who are going to be the, the core audience for these games in the next five, 10 years are already so tech savvy that it's almost irrelevant. Yeah. They don't even see to think about us trying to explain technologies to our parents, not really getting what do they get, right? Um, uh, I'm getting these same things right now from, from my kids that they don't get what I, I don't get. Right. Uh, so I think moving into the future, uh, to the future, it's, it's going to be a lot easier, but also like the bar, uh, for kids is a lot higher right now. They, they don't, they just get it immediately. 
they're natives. Uh, they, they never lived in, in a world where computers were not connected, right? And they also never lived in a world that didn't have crypto, really. I mean, you know, your kids were, if your 12-year-old was, wow, was born with Wow, I never thought of born, it. My kid was born my with kid Bitcoin. Was born a, my kid was born with the Bitcoin white paper, the first kid, right? The other is... Yeah. I had one with Ethereum, actually. Wow, I never thought of it that way. I should... Yeah, uh, so they're, they're, they'll never be in a world where this wasn't uh, something that existed and, and was relatively important, or at least known to the mainstream, right? I mean, Bitcoin is on the uh, CNBC and Fox uh, news tickers at this point. So you can't uh, live in your shelter under a rock anymore. Yeah, by the way, they know what Bitcoin is, or at least they're familiar with the term, right? So it's not uh, it's not threatening uh, to try and figure it out. Not like it is for uh, Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger and the other uh, 90 year olds on the planet. So obviously, exactly. I want to circle back. I don't want to forget because when we were moving from stable coins to gaming in the conversation, you said you really want to talk about reg tech. Yes. And first of all, explain what that means. Obviously, it's technology that helps uh, be compliant with regulation, I would imagine. But what does that really mean and why is that important? Yeah. So, so you know, you're spot on. This is the exact uh, definition. Um, and, and while regulation is always not very, uh, not very sexy, um, this is actually like the next iteration of Cody will be a lot about that. And, and, and why is it important? Look, the pendulum shifts, right? Um, and there is no doubt that regulation is coming to crypto and, and globally. Um, so the question is, what, will we, what do we do about this? Uh, is it good? Is it bad? Uh, are we just going to sit there and let ourselves, you know, be regulated out of existence? Um, no, I, I think not. And, and a lot of people are doing a lot of work everywhere. And we do what we do best, and, and, and we're building a technology. So, you know, we, we had, you know, hours and hours of conversation about, you know, uh, uh, where cutting is, where regulation is, uh, what is about to happen, what do we need to do? And, um, and we're thinking as, as, uh, as follows. Um, this is the mental model that we have right now. Um, Bitcoin is V1. This is, you know, value, data, and then the primitive of Bitcoin is the token. Ethereum, Cardano, Solana, whatnot, this is V2, and this is computation, decentralized computation, and the primitive is a smart contract. What we're thinking with Cody is that V3 is actually policy, and the primitive is a network policy. So what is a network policy, and, and why is that uh, uh, important? Um, a network policy uh, um, is, is a policy that allows, it's, it's a network that allows you to build a policy or multiple policies uh, and to prove to any relevant third party uh, that all actors on the network are in compliance. Okay? Uh, um, and, and why is it important to have network policies other than the obvious things that people think about financial compliance, financial regulation, and, and all of that? And I want you to think about the status quo that we have right now. Think about email and spam, okay? So SMTP, the email protocol, uh, is the email layer one, and it doesn't block spam. Spam wars are, are fought on the app level, right? Uh, on, on the Gmail level, on the Outlook level. And it means that every developer needs to solve the same problem on his own if he wants to have a policy that does not allow uh, spam. Now, if policy is enforced on the network level, apps don't need to solve 
uh, the problem independently. Policies are developed and then audited once, and then all apps can use them. Uh, and, and users can also look at dApps and say what sort of policies these dApps consume and decide if they want to interact with them or not. It does not limit your freedom. You can, uh, as a dApp, decide what sort of policies you want to consume. So, so a developer developed this policy. Someone developed uh, SEC policy. Someone developed uh, a privacy policy. All of that. And, and you can decide what you want to uh, include in your dApp. And then you adopt this policy and you can prove compliance with that. And users can see the same thing and decide the same thing. So that users can decide, I'm not going to uh, interact with any DAP that enforces any type of policy, um, or, and, or some decide otherwise, or some institutions decide I'm only going to interact with DAPs that uh, enforce these types of uh, policy. Now, it's very, um, uh, and, and you know, policy developers, auditors, that they can, it immediately creates like a token economy around this uh, that incentivizes people to create all these uh, things. Now, it's very easy to immediately think about, okay, cool. so regulation is is compliance, compliance is a, uh, AML, KYC, so this is, but it's, it goes way deeper than, than that. Web3 is innovating in decentralized social, like, you know, Noster. Physical infrastructure, decentralized science, uh, uh, real five, right? We're going to need many types of policies, so the potential is uh, is huge. You're going to need them in DAOs, not just in in uh, centralized systems. Yeah, that was going to be my next question. Is this really about governance, right? Because every single time somebody starts a DAO or or starts a DAP, as you said, they basically have to reinvent the wheel. Exactly. Start from scratch. They have to somehow pretend that their core competency is coming up with a reasonable policy. They have to get everybody on board. That's a huge barrier to entry if you could just go pick and choose yeah. ones that and exist and that you building... like. I never even thought about this. Never even yeah, thought. Yeah, and everybody's building the same smart contracts and, and to, to enforce these policy standards, they're good. They, they, get, they can have you know bugs in there. Or, and, and, you know, the definition of composability in software is that we only need to solve the same problem once and then everybody can consume it, right? Um, and and the protocols, the, the Yale ones, what they did uh, that, you know, TCP IP didn't do is have this token to incentivize uh, uh, the builders of, of the protocols. And you can do the same thing where the primitive is the policy. So people will be developing all sorts of policies, financial, non-financial, social, whatnot, for DAOs, not for, everything can be developed. Things can be also be audited, right? So you can potentially have, you know, KPMG auditing a set of policies, right? And, and, and signing uh, on these policies, right? And then DAPs can consume these policies without, and focusing on their core competence, which is, I don't know, maybe it's DeFi, maybe it's not, but they can focus on one thing and just consume the policies that has been audited over time. So regulators kind of like get familiar with this and KPMG has signed this and so, so on and so forth. Um, and you can incentivize builders uh, to do so. So this is what we think uh, maybe, and again, I'm agnostic to the question whether regulation is good or bad, right? Um, it's, um, it's just something, I acknowledge the fact that, it, that it's coming. And if we don't align and think how, what sort of structures we can put in place, so, you know, when the hatchet falls, it just doesn't kill everything. 
we need to be proactive. And, and, and this is like the mission that we see in Cori right now. Like how do we uh, kind of like take the next iteration of our infrastructure that we plan on revamping anyway, and kind of like have these sort of things uh, ready there. And it doesn't mean that people will have to kind of like move all their TVL to Cori. The idea is that uh, our chain can interact with multiple chains, you know, uh, EVM compatible, non-EVM compatible, et cetera. Uh, so TVL can remain on whatever it is, but it interacts with our chain with uh, with relayers and, and everything. Let's not bore everybody with this, but uh, uh, but we're very pragmatic and practical in, in how we see this. Because when you sent me the idea of reg tech, when we just started talking about that, I assumed we were talking about SEC regulation and government regulation, but this is effectively, so I was wrong, it's effectively self-regulation to get ahead of what's coming there or to guarantee that when that hammer drops, you are compliant. Yeah. That's and, something and I've also, considered. Yeah. And also like, um, um, it's, it's, it's kind of like, okay, let's look at reality. What sort of structures we have in reality, right? In physical world, not reality. And and we have all these social structures. It's not all based on contracts, right? When 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 you want to cross the intersection in green light, you don't sign a contract with all other drivers out there. There's a policy for that, right? Green, you drive; red, you stop, etc. Uh, and and this kind of helps things move. There's some uh, uh, standards that are already uh, happening out there, and and it, and and that is actually freedom. Uh, this sort of compliance actually brings in freedom because you don't need to worry every time you cross the road, uh, are you going to get killed because people comply with that, right? So it's not always bad. It's not always good. It's just, um, it's another way to achieve freedom. And I think um, the ethos in everything, in, in a lot of the things that we do is about freedom, right? And And the freedom to consume certain policies and not consume others uh, and being able to prove that you are in compliance um, will actually save us a lot of the freedoms that we want in how we build things and the sort of innovation that we want to achieve uh, without eventually, you know, compromising on, okay, so now we're just going to add, you know, whatever, KYC and everything. And uh, This is not the future that we're looking for, right? So um, uh, so this is why we build this and, and we're very excited because if we get it right, uh, this is V3 of Web3, so um, we're really gearing up uh, towards this this year. So interesting. Not something that I really considered, but I always sort of mocked the concept of the DAO because to me it was like Lord of the Flies. It was, like I said, reinvented the wheel, trying to figure out every single time. Self-cannibalism, somebody inevitably takes control, but this really solves that. Yeah, but I think... Just imagine that whenever you wanted to start a company like an LTD, you needed to come up with the entire rule book again, right? Like what's legal, what's illegal, what's a dividend policy, like when is it allowed? Like a lot of the things, uh, like in, in Israel, there's like uh, like this book with all the rules that companies, uh, uh, like in, in the formation of companies, you don't need to invent this again and again and again. It's so unpractical. But with DAOs, which is like, you know, the decentralized uh, form of a company on uh, on the internet, you actually do come up with everything uh, uh, the entire time. Doesn't make a lot of sense. So this is the digital version of that. So uh, I know we're getting up against time here, but anything left that uh, you're not cynical about and are extremely excited about in the crypto space? Um, 
One of the things that people don't know about uh, about us is like uh, what has been our secret weapon because we never raised a lot of fund or, or sold uh, a lot of tokens, um, and we managed to you know uh, somehow fund a lot of uh, a lot of the beauty, beautiful things uh, you're hearing about. And so the the, the secret weapon um, has been um, uh, hedge funds that we're all partnering. So my co-founder is a math PhD. Uh, with uh, 14 patents around uh, AI and pattern recognition, so the company to IBM, the smartest guy in any given room, right? Um, and and he's been training a neural network for 10 years, uh, and we're training about uh, using its prediction uh, for the past uh, five years. It takes about 40 proprietary signals from the market, takes it all to the neural network, and that creates like a short-term prediction about major assets. So it essentially tells you. Uh, I believe BTC will, you know, rise, drop to this price in the next uh, 48 hours. Um, and uh, that's, this really sounds uh, borderline crazy, but the reality is that the win rates of it has been about 80% uh, in the last uh, five years. Um, and it allows you to take small bets. And that becomes major upside over time. You don't need to risk much because the win rate is pretty good. Uh, and then it kind of like did about 100% a year, every year with very low uh, drawdown. Um, so it, today it's mostly prop trading. Every now and then we kind of onboard, uh, you know, friends or high net worth individuals that we work with. Um, but uh, this has been like the secret sauce of like how we funded things over time. Incredible. Most people fail utterly and entirely at trading, and you guys are funding uh, multi-million-dollar businesses. It, it's it's because we do. And by the way, the, the, one of the things that we don't really trade a lot. Uh, it's like very low-frequency trading. It does like one or two trades a day, usually in major assets, uh, usually in a very small amount. Uh, but it's just pretty. It's it's pretty accurate, right? And and that has done like all the difference. Absolutely in, incredible, man. So listen, where can everybody follow you and keep up with what you're doing? Uh, I, uh, because I have the, uh, my name is Shachaf Balgefen, which is impossible, right? So it's S-H-A-H-A-F-B-G. Uh, and that's me on every social because nobody else has that name. So Twitter and, and Telegram and whatnot uh, would be the easiest. Uh, also, Shachaf at Cori.io. Um, I'm pretty accessible. So, um, yeah. True story, man. Well, I appreciate the positivity and everything that you're building uh, in a world where all we hear is how crypto is dead. Oh, no, it's, it's far from dead. Thank you, man. All right. Let's do